Listener Production. Most jerks at work have a talent or two. And the reason why they get away with this stuff is because other people like them at work. They bring something to the company. They have value. And so some places kind of encourage work jerkery more than others. And then if you have some of the trappings of a jerk and you kind of plant them in those environments, they have everything they need to thrive and to grow. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe. And this is Fast Track. I recently read the back cover of the book, Jerks at Work, and immediately wanted to speak to the author. It said, have you ever watched a colleague charm the pants off management while showing a competitive Machiavellian side to the lower ranks? They don't hesitate to throw peers under the bus, but their boss is oblivious to their bad behaviour. What about a constantly interrupting colleague or an overbearing manager. Whilst these jerks stress us out in small ways throughout the day, they aren't technically breaking any rules, so we're expected to put up with them. I thought to myself, just every client ever has spoken about this to me over the last 20 years of coaching and consulting. So in this episode, I'm thrilled to be speaking to Professor Tessa West. She's Professor of Psychology at New York University, where she runs the West Interpersonal Perception Lab, a research unit that studies broadly how we deal with each other and how those interactions affect our mental and physiological states. Her book, Jerks at Work, has just been published and it plans to help thousands of people resolve this age-old pressing workplace issue, how to deal with jerks at work. Welcome to Fast Track, Tessa, and thanks for tackling this much-needed question of how we deal with jerks at work. I think we've all got a story about people who are difficult and jerks at work, but you study it. What's your interest in prom and how did you start researching this? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. So as a social psychologist, I actually study awkward social interactions for a living. I bring people into the lab, I make them incredibly uncomfortable, and we do things like have them give feedback to someone, have them negotiate with someone who has a lot more power than them, how to tell someone that they're they're not really well-liked at work and what they could do about it. And we found these kind of fascinating results of all the ways people will kind of avoid having these uncomfortable conversations, even if we look at their physiology and see that they're stressed out. So I've been studying this for about, I don't know, 20 years now, but my real interest actually stemmed from some personal experience in one of the first jobs I had selling men's shoes, where I saw my first jerk who just totally outwitted me on the sales floor. He was torturous and insulting and just made me feel horrible about myself, but the boss loved him because he could upsell everybody. And I realized then that most jerks at work have a talent or two, and the reason why they get away with this stuff is because Other people like them at work. They bring something to the company. They have value. And so that's really the difficulty that I think a lot of us are facing today. Mm. So in your research about bad bosses and these power dynamics and bad co-workers, what have you found specifically in these labs? You make people super uncomfortable, but what are you finding around this area? What we tend to find is that people will avoid having conflict or negative social interactions at all costs. So even in situations where, say, you negotiate with someone and you're much better at the negotiation than them, even find out at the end that you won a negotiation, 
they're just not likely to actually give that kind of feedback. And so we go through life, you know, maybe misstepping, making mistakes, saying the wrong thing, and no one really ever tells us. And there's this huge mismatch between what people do and what's going on beneath the surface, under the skin, so to speak. So their heart rate and their blood pressure will be racing the whole time they're smiling and telling someone, you're lovely, you're wonderful, I love working with you, you're so smart and great. And people are just, they have a really hard time dealing with these difficult social issues, even if they're experiencing stress the entire time. So is the the jerk phenomenon really about lack of feedback or is it something deeper than that? I think it's a combination of lack of feedback, cultures or contexts that really breed it. So not every workplace is jerk friendly. And I think some places kind of encourage work jerkery more than others um, in different kinds of work jerkery. Really competitive places will encourage kissing up and kicking down. It's actually the only way you can get ahead. Other places encourage things like free riding because the boss is too busy to pay attention. So workplaces have to be a fertile ground. And then if you have some of the trappings of a jerk and you kind of plant them in those environments, they have everything they need to thrive and to grow. Layer on top of that, we're a little bit clueless how other people see us. In fact, most of us don't really know what our reputations are at work. Um, We're very inaccurate at kind of knowing what people think of us. So we're not getting the feedback, or if we are getting the feedback, we're not attending to it. So we're not correcting those bad behaviors. And what we find is that often these jerks are doing things that harm themselves just as much as they harm other people. And part of that is because they're not getting that feedback at work. Okay, so in Australia, we even have a football team that talks about what we call the no dickhead policy, Mm -hmm. where they've said they would filter out the dickheads. So fundamentally, it would be, in your words, a no jerks policy. But my question is, who determines who's the jerk? Yeah, that's a great question. What is a dickhead? My guess is a dickhead is someone who's really atrocious, right? They're doing things that are so egregious. There's a 100% consensus around what that bad behavior is. They're poisonous. They're toxic. They're engaging in behaviors that are contagious and they spread and they kind of spoil the whole team. So I think in, in that case, we can often identify these folks. But what happens if the dickhead is the best performer? I'd be super curious to see, are they willing to actually give up that person and trade them to another team? if, you know, they're the absolute most talented person on the team. And that's actually where we find this problem. So determining what a dickhead is, is often, you know, you've got to weigh out their, their bad behaviors with what they're, what they're bringing, what their performance looks like. And often what we find in the workplace is that people will side with the performance and say, well, they're not that bad of a dickhead because look at how many goals they got in that last match, (laughs) you know, and we do that all the time at work. Yeah, exactly. So at work, if we've got these, what you call the more nuanced behaviours, they're just like your shoe salesman eating away at you, but not actually doing anything that's sackable in an offence. How do we determine that they're the jerk and we're not the jerk or we're not dealing with it well enough? Yeah, that's a great question. At what point do we decide they're so bad that, you know, we have a right to say something and we're not just being whiners about the whole thing? I think all of us can be jerks at work, honestly. I think um, we all have the potential under the right circumstances to be difficult to work with. 
And one thing I've learned in writing this book is that no one will tell you. So we sort of expect that feedback. If I was the jerk, I would have heard about it, you know, by now. But the truth is people don't give you that kind of feedback. So you have to look for the warning signs that people are disengaging from you. They're making excuses to get out of meetings with you. Or when you send emails, you get crickets back. That tends to actually be the real indicator that you're the jerk at work and that, you know, you, you need to kind of stop blaming all of your jerk behaviors on every other person that you're interacting with. My question is, how do we spot them? What are we looking for? And you've really helped us in your book. You've said there's seven sort of major types to look out for. Do you want to take us through just a couple of those or all seven? Sure. I'm happy to do kind of an elevator pitch for each one. So the first one is the kiss up, kick downer. So that's the person who will do anything to get ahead. They'll kick down at people who are at the same level as them or those beneath them. But the boss loves them because they bring a lot of talent to the team. And I think those people are really difficult to deal with because we're really up against a positive reputation, you know, in the power structure in the organization. The next is the credit stealer. So I think everyone's gone through that experience at work where they felt like their work or their ideas were just not valued enough. So credit stealers tend to be our friends or confidants, even our bosses. And when we're not around, they take credit for all the interesting stuff that we came up with, but they'll also grant credit to us for little things that don't matter to kind of cover their tracks, which makes them very difficult. Mm. Then the next is the bulldozer. So I think we all learned this person during the pandemic. They're the person we put on mute in those Zoom calls because we were tired of seeing their face and listening to their voice. So they can take over meetings. They can, you know, take up all the airspace. But what they do that's actually really dangerous is they go behind the scenes to sabotage whatever your group is trying to accomplish. So if they don't like the outcome, they'll go to the boss and complain about the process. They'll say it wasn't fair, nobody knew what they're voting on, so on and so forth. So you really have to work behind the scenes to kind of beat these people at their own game. Then we have the free rider. This also got really out of control during the pandemic because people were working in teams that never talked to each other. So your free rider has all the charisma in the world. They're well-liked, they're fun. You enjoy having them on the team, but they just take their work and they split it up equally among all 10 of you. And each person's doing a little bit, but no one can really feel you know, the pain of this person. And we actually end up overcompensating for them. And if we're conscientious, we do even more work. We even outperform teams that don't have these folks. So they're very good identifying who they can actually take advantage of. Then we have the micromanager, which is actually the most common form of management in the world. Mm. Not bad management, but just management. And I think, you know, micromanagers, if you work for one of them, you work the hardest, but you get the least done. Um, And that's kind of one indication you have someone that's overseeing every process, no matter how irrelevant, how much they actually need to be paying attention. Um, They're very bad at delegating and handing over trust to others within within the team. Then the neglectful boss, which is kind of the opposite side of that same coin, they tend to be spread too thin or, you know, they're maybe micromanaging someone else. So they disappear. They show up at the 11th hour. They freak out. They exert all this control over you. You make all these last minute changes to appease them and then they disappear again and you have no idea when they're going to show back up. Mm. Um, And so neglectful bosses tend to also be micromanagers. It just depends on kind of the time of day or the week that you get them. And the last is the scariest one. This is the gaslighter. 
So this person will lie with the intent of creating an alternative reality at work, um, often to cover their tracks or to keep people from quitting or leaving their team. And one of the major red flags of being gaslit isn't just the dishonesty, it's that you've been cut off socially from other people. Mm. You know, they, they prevent you from having contact with coworkers, with other bosses, because once you have that contact, then the secret is out. And that's, I think, the kind of the most deadly jerk at work. They can really kill morale in the workplace because once people find out it's happening and other leaders are doing nothing about it, they get really pissed off and it can really, you know, really lead to come negative emotions in the workplace. Mm, that's so interesting. Thank you. So what's the research say about the impact of those people, the impact of poor behaviour on others in the workplace? Tessa, it's, it's more impactful than we actually think it is, isn't it? Yes. So people underestimate the impact that these daily negative workplace relationships have on our bodies, on our other relationships, on our productivity. Um, and in fact, our workplace relationships, especially when they're going poorly, are bigger predictors of things like getting cancer, diabetes, heart, you know, heart disease, than your home life, you know, than your spouse, than your kids, than the conflict in those relationships. And it makes sense because we just spend about 10 times more hours in our life with our colleagues than we do with the people that we love, that we care about. So there's a direct effect on, you know, workplace stress on health outcomes. And in fact, there's one paper that just came out showing that working with toxic bosses can literally kill you. It shaves, you know, years off of your lifespan through the slow accumulation of low-level stress. So I feel like we often underestimate the impact of these things. And then we also have what's called stress contagion. So if you're feeling negative at work, you're leaking all these cues around other people. You're, you know, coming across as needy and uncomfortable when you're feeling anxious and uncertain, if you're getting, you know, negative feedback from your boss all the time. So others can pick up on that stress and it can impact them as well. So it's not just us that are impacted by these relationships, it's everybody around us. In fact, simply sitting in an open concept office next to someone who's stressful can negatively impact your performance directly just by picking up on those nonverbal cues, like fidgeting and things like that. Mm. So it really affects us in, in all the ways. I'm um, fascinated by the health impacts, but also I hear lots of leaders saying they're going to shield their team from, you know, all the toxicity above, but this person can't shield their team because they turn into a jittery mess. So in COVID, when we were working remotely, you know, it's talk about the contagion, stress contagion. Were we still having stress contagion when we were working remotely? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in office, stress contagion spreads in different ways, but what we found during remote work is that we didn't have the same boundaries that we have when we go to the office. So people were starting to text each other and call each other at all hours of the day and on weekends because we no longer had a work day and we no longer had a, a single medium of communication. So normally people would stop by your office, your, you know, your boss, your manager. And then once they left, you were safe. But during the pandemic, they started to text. I've had bosses like slide into my DMs on Instagram if they couldn't get a hold of me. All the ways, Twitter, Facebook, all the socials, your personal account. And they're also getting more information about whether you received that. So text, for instance, have like a delivery mode. So they were able to kind of spy on you in ways that we don't normally have in the workplace. So I actually think it got worse. We felt like it was a little better because we are isolated. We we're a little bit in this bubble working from home, but the communication became slippery 
and all of the time. And for those reasons, that emotion contagion definitely was still going on. Okay, cool. Thank you. So who's to blame? You know, we've all experienced these terrible working relationships and we get jerks at work, but whose responsibility is it ultimately? Is it the institution or the organisation or is it up to me as an individual to cope or set standards? I'm curious about your thinking, not only who's to blame, but who owns the solution here? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, lots of people have been asking me this question. Is this about changing culture? Is this about changing individuals? What's the sort of best approach? Absolutely culture. So the most impact that we can have with behavior change is by creating social norms at work, right? So if you read my book, you can change how you interact with someone, but if you don't ever share that information, then that kind of experience is going to leave when you leave a job and that workplace is not going to get any better. So I think it's absolutely essential that first we start by having conversations about how to even handle low-level conflict at work. I mean, I don't know about you, but I never got a course on conflict management. You know, it's punitive in America. It's like you really screwed up at work (laughs) and then you go to like microaggression training class, right, on a Saturday or something like that. It's a punishment to learn how to do this stuff. And I think that's a really problem. So we need to have companies and cultures that first kind of have an introduction and then bake it into the process of everything they do. So do things like kill 360 feedback, kill performance management at the end of a quarter and instead bake small amounts of feedback and everyday conversations into everything we do. And, you know, we know that behavior change and giving people feedback to improve works best if it's specific to a one thing, it's frequent and it's small. So we don't want to wait till someone is out of control where we have to say something like, you smother me at work to a micromanager. That's too big and it's scary and it's not useful. Instead, we want to give them specific behaviors that they did that weren't helping. You emailed me 20 times a day. You called me at 9 p.m. Those specific behaviors can be changed. Large, nebulous, ad hominem things like you're a smotherer aren't possible to really change. So we have to change how we talk about these things at a very cultural level, at a very structural level, and then, you know, create some kind of system to make sure that they stay in place no matter who leaves. And I think that's really critical to actually creating change around this. And of all of the types that you described, I think the gaslighter is probably the hardest person to actually identify and expose is probably a bad word here, but to exit an organisation. Yeah. They're so successful at it over a period of time that it does take a long time to get them exposed. So what are some of the typical responses like we have as as people to jerks? I know there's obviously the fight, flight and freeze moments, but is there a typical reaction people tend to have or a right way to deal with people when you're in the workplace? I think our typical reaction is to either freeze or to tell people how their behavior makes us feel. So neither of which are actually that productive. Freezing and hiding from people tends to be the response that most of us do, especially if it's someone who has more power than us. But if we actually get up the courage, maybe take a couple shots of tequila before you go into that meeting and say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to have you know radical candor and tell you exactly how I feel. What we do is lead with how we feel. I feel like you don't trust me here. I feel like you don't care what I say or I'm not being heard. 
talking about our feelings as a first step is not actually very useful. Instead, you have to talk about what the person did specifically, not how it made you feel and not why you think they did it. We tend to kind of make attributions for behaviors like, you know, you're you're micromanaging me because you don't trust me. We don't actually know if it has to do with trust. It could stem from a lot of things like they're being micromanaged, you know, or there's too many reporting layers or they don't actually know how to manage so that they're trying to do their old job. Don't assume you know the cause of someone's jerk behavior, um, especially if it doesn't seem intentional, but do focus on specifically what they're doing and then kind of work together on what you can do instead of that thing. But I always lead with, if you're going to have one of these conversations, first start with something that you want them to do more of that you like. And I, and I feel like in feedback conversations, especially around conflict and uncomfortable stuff, we don't really do that. We lead with the negative. And instead we should say, Last week you did these awesome 10 things that I wish I would I could see more of you doing. But let's talk about this one thing that I would like to see changed. You know, kind of framing it depending on whether they have more power than you. And then at the end you're going to have to bite the bullet and say, "Do you have any feedback for me of what you would like me to do more or less of?" And no one wants that. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. But if you do this all the time and it's about small things, then it becomes normative. So I feel like that's the best approach, but it goes against our intuition of either hiding or focusing on our feelings, which aren't just that productive in the workplace. They get people's defenses up and then they get threatened and then they just engage in things like reverse blame. So I was going to actually ask you, do we need to understand other people's motivations and insecurities? But if I'm picking up from the last answer, it's actually just lean in and have a conversation about it. Yeah. What's going on for you? I'm experiencing this. I think that's true. I think sometimes knowing the why can really help. So I'll give you a couple of concrete examples. So for example, with neglectful bosses, if you know that that boss has, say, spins five hours a day answering to their boss and they only have 20 minutes a day for you, then there's a very concrete explanation for the neglect. They simply don't have the time for you. So your goal is to free up some of their time doing something else, maybe offering to offload work, to get some of that time back. If the neglect is due to something else entirely, they just don't see you as a top performer, and you know they know who their stars are, and those are the only ones they pay attention to, then that's a different source, and you're gonna have to kind of go about the problem a little bit differently. So I would say sometimes it helps to know the reason, but don't kind of over obsess over that, especially with like the gaslighter. Who cares what the reason is? That's not even your problem. You got to build up that wall around you and find those, you know, allies and so forth. So sometimes the reason can help. And sometimes it helps to ask, is there something I'm doing that's contributing to this? Micromanagers will often say, if you did your job better, I wouldn't have to micromanage you. And so it's uncomfortable, but you might need to hear them out. Perhaps you're being a little sloppy. You need to at least go through that exercise of understanding the why. And sometimes they'll just say, look, I'm really uncomfortable in this new management role, or this is how I was always managed. This is how I was trained how to do it. Um, So the why can help, but I agree with you that obsessing over the why is not going to fix the problem. It's not going to get you to the end point of where you need to be. And being someone else's therapist is also not our job at work. So working through all their past drama that led them to suck um, is not necessarily your problem problem to solve. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Sadly, we're coming to the end of the discussion and I'm just wondering if there's anything, last tips or ideas for us apart from going out and buying your book right now because it's filled (laughs) with such great insights. But I'm curious about just now, is there anything you recommend to people, any insights or tips? 
I would say that um, there is no silver bullet to fixing jerks at work. That if anyone comes to you and says, read my book and everything will magically get better in the next 24 hours, don't believe them. This stuff is hard. It's a process. It really takes a bunch of small behaviors practiced over time to work. But practice makes perfect and you're going to get more confident and you're going to get better at these things the more you try them. But there's definitely a patience that you're going to need to have for all real behavior change that sticks. It takes time, it takes practice, and it needs to scale you know, across different relationships. So don't feel discouraged if you have a hard time or if some of my advice just feels very scary and intimidating. That's okay too. Um, and then lastly, if you're the jerk at work, that's okay. We've all been there. You can change, you can improve. There aren't bad. Most of the cases, there's not bad apples at work. There's just bad situations (laughs) that bring out the worst in us. And and learning how to identify your triggers is also really important. Professor Tessa West, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and you interview with such joy about such a difficult topic. So (laughs) I, I really want to thank you for your time and your insights and your tips today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.